Welcome to the Diversity and Inclusion On Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the Association of American Veterinary Medical Colleges Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill, and I'm the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AAVMC. So on this episode of Diversity and Inclusion on Air, I'm very, really excited. Um, we're going to talk a bit about salaries in the veterinary profession today, and more specifically, salaries and gender. So there's been a lot, a lot written over the years about gender gaps in veterinary salaries. I was kind of Googling some articles before the show, and I mean, it just goes back <laughs> A really long time in terms of what you'll, uh, you're able to kind of Google and find things written about wage gaps, according to, to gender. And so some of the more recent numbers on things like the AVMA's salary calculators that came out a couple of years ago that generated a lot of controversial buzz <laughs> suggested that the gap between men and women at one point, probably more recently, was about $1,200 um, in annual salary. But um, maybe that's changing. Um, and there's certainly lots of, of factors for why that gender gap may exist. So today we're going to talk a bit th- about that. We're going to explore it. And I am joined by Dr. Clint Neal, an economist who has done a bit of research on this topic, whole dissertation. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So he's going to talk to me about kind of what's going on with this particular topic. For those of you who may have attended last fall's AVMA's Econ Summit, Clint was a speaker there. And so we're going to dive a little bit deeper into kind of what he talked about during that presentation and some of the work that he's been doing. So welcome to the show, Clint. Well, thanks for having me, Lisa. (laughs) So as is our custom, I always ask my guests to tell us a little bit about yourselves and kind of where you're from, where you're going. What are you doing these days? <laughs> I'm going about 100 miles an hour these days is really what's happening. But no, like you said, my name's uh, Clint Neal. I'm a assistant professor at Virginia Tech University in the Agricultural and Applied Economics Department. I started there in August of 2017. Before that, I was at Oklahoma State University finishing my PhD in Agricultural Economics. Uh, where my dissertation, as you mentioned, was all focused about vet incomes and what's going on in the industry. Most of my research has focused on veterinarians as well as food economics. So anything dealing with the food chain, whether it be production or consumer perceptions about GMOs and all those different types of things and different labeling attributes, that's kind of where my my realm is in research. But I kind of got started on all this vet research when um, the previous economics director, uh, Mike, Dr. Mike Dix, uh, came to Oklahoma State and was asking people to work on this issue. And I said, well, data I don't have to collect. I will definitely work on that. <laughs> but ever since then, I've been with working with AVMA for the last almost five years and just really exploring what's going on with incomes and what we can figure out there. Well, great. Welcome to the show. I know that they really appreciate the work that you do. I was chatting with Dr. Matt Saloy ahead of the show and kind of getting talking to Matt and Bridget, Dr. Bridget Bain, about coming on and talking a bit more about not only this issue, but also what's kind of going on with respect to economics and diversity within the profession. So um, you are in great company. And (laughs) as someone who also finished their dissertation not that many years ago, the best dissertations are the done dissertations. (laughs) 
<laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, Clint, let's dive on in. Uh, what is there a gender-based wage gap in veterinary medicine? Well, you know, as everybody probably has already heard at some point or another, there is a gender wage gap in vet in veterinary medicine, and you know, it's an interesting topic that I was kind of asked to take on with this project. And the big thing that we really wanted to look at with this project was answering the why. What factors kind of contribute to that? Um, can we identify those factors? Are they something that's, you know, we can say, oh, well, it's this, or, you know, this is a major part of that wage gap, or, you know, is it still a lot of it in the unconscious bias world? And so that there is a wage gap, and that's something that would, I think does warrant a lot of discussion across the industry, and I'm glad it's being brought up a lot more. So what are those factors? Is unconscious bias... I mean, let's just start right at the top here because <laughs> it's about diversity, right? So, yeah. um, so how does unconscious bias, unconscious or implicit bias play into this? Is there just off the top some kind of a differential that may be attributed to gender bias? Yeah, I mean... Well, let me back up a little bit and say, when I talk about unconscious bias within the form of the gender wage gap is it's something that is not explained by something that I as an economist using fancy statistics and all these other things can say, it's this variable, right? And so when I say unconscious bias, it's something that's still unexplained. And we do still see that. I I have looked at this data, again, for about five years and there's always some differential happening between male and female veterinarians. We tried to get at that a little bit more with this with this current project. And what we really see is that it's about gender roles and expected gender roles from different people, mostly hiring managers in that regard. But there's also some things that hopefully we can get into a little bit more in future research that I'll, I'll uh, talk about a little bit later. So there's a... There's a chunk of money that some folks are not getting that is unexplained by other variables. Yeah. All right. <laughs> That's what it boils down to in the world of the economics. So, so, you know, Dr. Matt, Matt and uh, Saloy and I, we joke a lot because e- economics um, is also considered a social science, right? And so, so we, we, we joke, we're both social scientists, but on my side of that particular area of of study, you know, we, we think that there are definitely variables that are less conscious and that, that you know, we have mechanisms by which we, we can really kind of explore that, right? And so, so it's a really interesting research question looking at it from a, a quantitative basis, kind of like, okay, well, we can't explain this amount of money, you know, we, can, we have other factors that may be attributable to this particular gender-based kind of differential. Um, and then there's, you know, the 10, 20, 30, 40, 100 bucks that may not be, right? <laughs> and so, so, so it is an interesting question. So uh, what does that gap look like right now? And I know that it changes over time, but what, is there a gap for new grads? Yeah. And of which, of course, are women. Yeah. And so I will say for the most part, my research mostly predominantly focused on the new grads, on the new veterinarians, right? And so what we see is there's that gap is about about $1,200 right now. And it's been decreasing over time. AVMA has, the economics division has done a lot of research on this to see, monitor the wage gap over time. 
And what they saw is about about four or five years ago was about 9% of your income, which is quite a bit. And now it's down to more like 2 to 3%. And so we do kind of see this narrowing happening, uh, which I think is a good thing. And it's, it's coming down quite a bit to where, you know, it, uh, hopefully <laughs> we can get it closed. You know, we can find out what those factors are now and in the next year, couple of years or so, and really help female that specifically close that gap and say, hey, you know, we're here. We're, you know, this is a female dominated field now. Why is there still a pay gap? Right. Um, as compared to the 1980s when it was predominantly male, right? Right. And so this is a, it is narrowing, which is I, I can say is always a good thing. <laughs> so in the presentation that you gave last fall at the Econ Summit, you talked about that kind of nine down to two or 3%, but then you also talked a bit about what happens over the lifetime of a practitioner, right? Yeah. Um, and that there are, some things that happen that maybe make that gap widen again. Yeah. And so what we really see there, I, this is something that's really more for future research, but I'll, I'll talk about what I at least saw so far. And so over time, we see that men tend to end up in those higher income brackets much more quickly than women do. That over your experience, that within the one to five year range, a five to, a six to 10 year range, and the 11 to 25 year range are the kind of the experience levels I looked at. And when we see that men tend to get in those upper income ranges really quickly, more so in the probably first 10 years of practicing, and women are more in that 11 to 25 years of experience where that we see more of them shift over into those higher income brackets. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was really... This is just kind of looking at the data, not really doing anything, any statistics, just kind of looking at what what are those percentages in those upper income ranges? We see that there's a lot more practice owners in there. We see that most of those practice owners, over half of those practice owners are male. So about 60, almost 60%, I believe, of the practice owners in those upper incomes are male. And that we see a third of those in the higher incomes also have specialty. Or they could have a specialty and be a practice owner or just have a specialty. I haven't parsed that out yet. But, uh, and then a lot of most of them are actually uh, companion animal practitioners as well. So we see those are really defining factors getting into those upper income ranges, whether that's, that's our passion or not, right? right? Of being a practice owner, of working with companion animals, that may not be our passion, but that's what the data is showing with those higher income ranges. Right. And I mean, you know, that's kind of, what we hear more generally when we're talking about things like how do you make sure that you're able to service your loan debt and how <laughs> to make sure that you're all of these other questions I think that are are being discussed in the profession. How do you service your debt? How do you become air quote successful, at least you know, um financially, um, materialistically, how do you become successful? And, you know, practice ownership typically is one of the biggest drivers of, you know, the, the biggest uh, drivers of those answers that folks are saying, well, this is, this, that's the pathway. Um, and then I guess layering on, you know, a practice, a specialty practice owner <laughs> just seems to, you know, go on up the chain a bit. Yeah, completely. And I, <laughs> my, my dad owns his own business. He's in the oil, oil field and all those things, but that was something I never wanted. So I, I very much resonate with those that don't want to own their own practice that just kind of want to work and do what they're good at and just keep moving on. So I, again, it does 
financially, we see those people who own that practice are a little bit more financially stable, uh, are able to service their loan debts probably faster, maybe not necessarily more efficiently, but faster in a sense. And, and you know, a lot of people I tell them, like, well, you want to own a business? Great. That's a lot more risk than I want to take on. <laughs> so there are trade-offs. I mean, those people have the potential and the probability to be more financially successful, air quote, like you said. Right. But again, I always encourage people to follow their passion. But that that's what the data says from a quantitative standpoint. So do you also see, you mentioned that this was in um, companion or small animal, typically small animal. Of course, we know that there are big animals that are companion <laughs> animals too. <laughs> like some, some people believe a cow is a pet. <laughs> <laughs> and horses and, yeah. you know, iguanas and all of that, right? So, but do, are, are you seeing similar gaps in other practice areas? We do see that wage gap happening all over in almost in every practice area from what I've seen, actually. And so it's not just specific to one practice area or another that, you know, maybe women are doing better in one or another. It's really come down to this is a a profession-wide problem. And it's something that is probably more pronounced in in a couple... They're pretty... It's pretty equal across all um, practice types from what I remember. I think there was one practice type, I think food animals that had a, a slightly larger wage gap, but it was a, maybe a couple hundred dollars compared to that average of 1200 Okay. All right. So, so Clint, how does this fit into the larger kind of discussions around, you know, gender wage gaps? I mean, you know, I think that, that we're two non-veterinarians that just get to hang out and <laughs> hang out with the coolest profession in the world. But... You know, I think that that for those of us that that do have a foot outside of of this particular space, we're very aware that there are other. I mean, that there's generally a, a gender wage gap globally. And so, how does this kind of fit into that? Is it as bad as some other areas? Is it better than you know? I mean, we could be we could be some other profession uh-huh. where it's like a twenty five thousand dollar wage gap. <laughs> <laughs> Not That's really use people for paying twelve hundred dollars less. Let me be very yeah. clear about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I will say for veterinarians, it's pretty unique that I kind of when I was looking at this problem, I was mostly looking at things like other professional services. So when we're looking at lawyers, we're looking at uh, human medical doctors, we're looking at uh, dentists and um, chiropractors and those types of things. And what we really see is we see very we see a lot of similarities to that. We see that you know women are typically paid less, proportionally is about the same. But I kind of want to bring up this as the economist. You know, we see that we're seeing the same thing happen in my field, right? In economics, and economics is doing a big push to try to get people to bring this up, to talk about it more, and to be more transparent about it. And so when I think about that, and I, I kind of go back to this pay gap within veterinarians, and I go. Well, this is a problem everywhere. So, But what we really find, some of the research I was looking at was that professions that are very heavily female-dominated, that a larger proportion of the profession is female, which is what the veterinary industry is becoming now that we're over 50% female, right? Right. Is that the pay gap tends to be more pronounced with those professions because there's so few males within that field that there's... 
for some reason, it tends to be pronounced. And that, that kind of shocked me. I was like, wait a second, this should be opposite. <laughs> but it's because there's so few males in there that some, for some reason that is still unexplained. And I think that's kind of the important thing here to say that there's always more research to be done is that those that are heavily female dominated tend to see a higher wage gap. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think this is a problem globally and it's going to continue to be more heavily discussed in the future, uh, especially with the Me Too movement and everything else that's going on. I think women are, you know, they're ready to stand up and say, hey, this is our time to really be treated as equals as much as possible. And so I, I, I'm excited to see that future. Yeah, that, it, that future is exciting. It is It is kind of this oddity that the, the fewer that you, fewer men that, that are present are getting paid more. But, but you know, it's, it's interesting because I see that it's not a pay, but I see a similar type of trend in terms of admitting applicants, male to female applicants, right? And so the percentage, the overall percentage, and frankly, the raw numbers of, of men applying to veterinary school is been on a downward trend for 30 plus years, right? But we see that men are disproportionately admitted at a higher rate than their female counterparts. Now, I'm not suggesting that they necessarily should or shouldn't be. And and maybe that pool is just that. But statistically, it is an anomaly. Yeah. (laughs) Right? It's an anomaly. And when we really kind of look at those individual scores, it doesn't suggest their scores are not statistically different than their female peers. And so, again, there are unexplained reasons. Now, for, for um, on the admission side, we recognize, and I, I would imagine on the salary side too, that we're just so eager <laughs> when we finally get that one or two or three you know, young men, uh, we're so eager to retain them in the profession that there's a there's kind of a, a both an admittance on the very, very front end, but a salary kind of benefit mm-hmm. kind of to to try to keep them and retain them in the profession. Yeah, and I, I, I'm glad you're seeing that on on the education side as well. So it kind of matches up with what we're what I'm finding as well with the on the income and salary side. But what I really find interesting, and I, I didn't, and this, I talked a little bit about this at the Econ Summit was, you know, with, when we talk about the gender wage gap, it's really coming down to quantitatively the variable yeah. <laughs> that is coming out significant is that when women are, that pay gap increases for women when there's children in the household. And that I find that very interesting in the sense that I really think people and hiring managers, when we did a focus group, that was a big concern with women was that they were still expecting women to take on that that role as the primary caregiver for their children. And so when I see, when I think about this, and this is purely my opinion, doesn't reflect anything from AVMA or my university or anything on me put that caveat in here. (laughs) (laughs) Let me put my disclaimers in real quick. Uh, before I put my foot in my mouth, you know, I think that's still what is expected from a from a large portion of society is that women are expected to take care of their kids, and that you know there is a mother bond. We see that within animals, we see that within humans. That the mother child bond is very strong. There's a lot of research behind that, but that that is still expected of women almost. Right. And I I, I disagree with that in the sense because I would love to be a stay at home dad. Right. <laughs> I will let my wife be the breadwinner and stay at home. And take care of kids, but I, 
we see that hiring managers tended to really have aversion to women having kids, but also men. It, they did mention that men and young children in the household, they knew that that was going to require a lot of time and that kids come first, which, hey, great to know the industry has a heart for kids, but they seem to expect women to take on that role more so than men. And so when they had that opportunity to say, well, I've got two candidates that are equal, one male and one female, and the female is more likely to have kids and have to take maternity leave and all those things, they they tended to drift towards saying, okay, well, I can hire the male, they're going to work, you know, I don't have to have that time off. I need somebody that's going to work 60 hours consistently every week. You know, that that's that was their reasoning, whether that's right or wrong. <laughs> but that was a big concern. And when I talked to a lot of female veterinarians, they have all said that kids are the, what causes a lot of problems with trying to work consistently as a practitioner, as an associate, or as a practice owner, even. Mm. Wow. It's like we haven't really moved that far from that, what was it, Mary Tyler Moore episode from way back <laughs> that gets um, a lot of airtime where, you know, she's she's going to her boss. I think it was Ed Asner saying, why does he get paid more? And he's like, well, he has a family to support because there's basically a wife at home that's taking care <laughs> yeah. of kids and you're here. So, you know, it, and so it, the the irony or sadness around that is is that we that, that there's still evidence that that's happening unintentionally yeah. probably well it, it, that's why i do say i think some of it is still unconscious it's still just the old way of thinking and it, it's things we need to we need to make conscious is what i'm going to yeah. say is really think about this so, you know, um, I reached out to my colleagues at the Women's Veterinary Leadership Development Initiative, and, you know, they are such a great organization. Disclosure, I was on their board for a couple of years as well. But, you know, they're really advocating for women to be a bit more assertive and direct in terms of negotiating, asking for appropriate wages, and really kind of some of those other um, economic and social behavioral things that kind of might be willing to close the gap. So, you know, and I don't know if there's a way, how do you measure those variables in econ? But, you know, certainly it seems, at least in a short period of time, we've seen that wage gap close. So, you know, is there any evidence, at least on and stuff that you're working on that, you know, Vivaldi and those kinds of things that, that women kind of, you know, Rosie the Riveter moments saying, I pay me more are effective. Well, unfortunately, I don't have any way of actually measuring that right now. (laughs) And so that is one thing that I'm suggesting to Matt Soloy's group is, hey, maybe we need to talk about and in these surveys that are sent out, ask, did you negotiate for a higher salary? Is it, because once I know that, once we explicitly ask those types of questions, then I can go, oh, hey, this is actually making a difference. Yeah. And that's difficult to ask. And you, we don't know to ask it until we say, oh, hey, is this actually happening, right? Right. That's what research is for. That's why we always improve. But one of the things that you know people have always asked me ever since I gave that presentation at the Econ Summit last year was, and it's still weird to say last year, sorry, right. <laughs> was... You know, how do we how do we close it? You know, it's so close to being equal. How do we close this gap? And I said, just continue to encourage women to advocate for or negotiate a higher wage. And all I would say is, you know, keep pushing for that. I'm not the best negotiator in the world. 
<laughs> I didn't negotiate my salary. I was offered a salary and I, I took it. I didn't even say, hey, would you give me any more money? So there, being assertive like that is something that is invaluable, I think, for anybody. But women especially need to be comfortable with doing that. And I think as is, I'm not comfortable doing it, I know a lot of my colleagues aren't comfortable doing that. And so encouraging that, especially on the part of women, and getting expert negotiators to show them, hey, what are the tactics? What do we use? How do we come off as being assertive and being, you know, proud of what we're doing and not coming off as, you know, people having this biased view of women being assertive and thinking that's a bad thing. I think there's a little bit of a change that needs to happen there societally. But to really work with experts in negotiation and training like that, I know North Carolina State's veterinary program is really working on that. Um, I had a great conversation with uh, quite a few vets over there that were really focusing on, okay, how do we do this? Who do we need to get involved? Who should I talk to? That kind of stuff. Right. I absolutely agree. So, and I, I'm a big fan of the Wobaldi programming and, and a lot of the programming that our colleges are doing to help students and new graduates and, and professionals learn how to be effective um, negotiators on their behalf. However, I will also add, just from a diversity and inclusion, very specific perspective, is that it that while those skills are absolutely important, it is not the responsibility of the marginalized population to fix stuff. Let me be very clear. <laughs> and so that means that, you know, these hiring managers and practices need to really also make a commitment to pay equity because they are the decision makers with the cash. And so while we want everyone, especially women and non-binary folks and trans folks and everyone to really be able to go in and ask for what they're worth and what they deserve, there has to also be a real commitment on the part of hiring practices and practice managers and, and, um, and practitioners to commit to pay equity. Because again, it is not, it is, it is not the responsibility of the marginalized to fix their marginalization. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I, I completely agree. And I'm glad you brought that up because actually when I was doing a lot of this background research into these other professional services, when we talk about lawyers, for example, there's very there's a lot of transparency when you're a lawyer and how you get promotions. And it's all about it's very clear on the requirements of getting a pay raise specifically. You know, how many clients did you get? How many hours did you bill? And that type of thing. And that was really a determining factor of really closing the gender wage gap in lawyers because there was a lot of transparency and, okay, what are the requirements that need to get there? And then there's a whole, you know, that I think, you know, universities do that. There's still a pay gap in universities. I work for university and I'm saying that on air, but it's, it's all clear yeah. that there is a pay gap even across universities within the same department. And so understanding that. Transparency is one way to help with that, but it, it, like you're saying, it needs to happen on both sides. It needs to be the people who are hiring that offer a fair wage, as well as I'm going to continue to advocate for those that are being trying to be hired that you should always know what your time is worth, and that is always important. Right, right. So um, there's a there's a meme that I share sometimes, I'm like know your worth and then add tax, <laughs> <laughs> add interest. Right. <laughs> Loan interest, right? So, <laughs> so 
So I, am, I have a couple more questions before I, I let you go. So there was a big comment and certainly it's been reported. One of the big things that, that I think we still struggle with in the profession is kind of looking at um, not only kind of these wage gaps, but overlaying issues around race and ethnicity. And certainly we know that there's not been a, not a lot of data. We do know that, you know, AVMAs, they do collect race and ethnicity data, but, but there's not just a lot of it to work with. And so certainly I've been working with folks in the econ division to make sure that we get a lot more of that data to, to kind of see what's happening because we do know that people of color in particular in the U.S. Um, see an additional wage gap that is is below, frankly, what typically is white women. Um, and then when we look very specifically at women of color, that, that gap, um, you know, increases even more. So any comments on that? Uh, yeah. So I, I talked to Matt uh, Sloy about this after the comments at the Econ Summit. And he said, you know, that that is definitely where this research is going. And that that's kind of the next step is, okay, now that we've we've kind of got a good idea of how to basically measure that wage gap. Mm-hmm. And that was a big part of what this project was about is how do we actually measure it? Is okay, now let's expand this and continue this down the road. And like you said, there's there's tons of research out there that this wage gap is extended and gets worse for those of people of color. And so we need to understand, you know, can are there other factors that are affecting that? Can we use the methodology that we've kind of created through this project that I've been involved with? to extend that and really get at these, these more pressing issues. Um, I think the data, you know, the data is limited, but they've really done a really good job, that group already, the econ division with AVMA, of making sure that they are collecting as much data as possible. And so I think that is the next step. And I think that we can really jump in, into that probably within the next few, next year, honestly. Awesome. Wonderful. So my last question, and you've alluded to it, I'll show. Um, so what, what do you see are the big research questions? I mean, we've probably enumerated a half dozen already. <laughs> <laughs> more research, more research, more research. But, but what do you see are, are some of the big questions? And will you continue um, working on some of this wage for veterinary wage gap stuff? And where do you, where do you want to go? I hope to get a, continue to work on this. I'm AVMA has been very gracious to fund a lot of my work and give me the opportunity to do to work with their data. So I do hope this continues. The <laughs> big thing that I'm, I'm really interested in with this, um, so we, it's really hard to get at a lot of this quantitatively, as I've, I've kind of talked about, you know, I can't, unless we explicitly ask those questions, we don't always know what those questions are. It's hard to get at that and have a lot of data to back that up. But I'm, what I'm really curious about in the future is this practitioner-client relationship. I talked about this with Matt and Bridget over in the econ division, and we've seen a lot of, we know that hiring managers need to be better about offering equal pay. We know that we can, we can always negotiate for higher pay, but sometimes it's about the client and who they choose to go get their services from, their veterinary services from. And so what, what types of people are going to a female veterinarian or choosing a female veterinarian over a male? Why? You know, getting at those questions of understanding that sometimes it's out of our control, right, as, as a profession, and that how can we change that perception? What do these clients feel? And that was something that kind of came up in a study that was done by, I believe, the Women's Veterinary Leadership Development Initiative was that 
female vets felt like they had to act masculine in order to retain clients. Yeah. And there was a focus group about this. And it is, it's, a, it's published in um, uh, Gender and Society is the journal. Yeah. And I can send you the paper, Lisa, that you can post with the notes. But that was a big deal for them. And I thought, well, the problem, yes, maybe systemic from the side of the profession from, from somewhat, you know, on the hiring side, but it could really just be driven a lot by how society views this. And I, I suspect there's an age differential there on the clients, the, those that are older, mm-hmm. those in the baby boomer generation and such, are, and the silent generation are probably more geared towards going to a male veterinarian and that there may be a change or a shift that will hopefully happen with this, uh, these new generations coming up and being adults and owning animals. I know that I, I, I go to a vet, I look up online and I just see, okay, is this vet worth it or not? I, you know, I'm not necessarily looking at gender, but I always find that a female veterinarian takes better care. You know, they're, they're more personal and intimate with what, how I feel about my animal. And I tend to gravitate towards that. Mm. And so I, I do think that's something that's coming up with these generations, but that's kind of where the research is going for me. And also do female veterinarians and male veterinarians value their time the same, right? What's an hour worth of work versus an hour with family? If you have a family or are on vacation or doing anything else. And how do we, can we value that? Which I think we can, but understanding those two big things in the future, I think is really where the research lies. Really um, exciting. And certainly, you know, it's, it's going to be, I'm, I'm sure that there may be some overlaps with what, what we see in human health, but of course it will be different because yeah. the overall reasons or the, funda- or the fundamental reasons why, you know, women or men may look for a particular gender doctor, human health, in right. you know, will be a little bit different, but there are also these amazing kinds of trends in, in families around understanding that women don't always have, you know, that women often drive a lot of familial decision-making around kind of what we eat, <laughs> where we shop, what doctors we go to, all of those kinds of things. And part of that is, is embedded in that gender role those so so some of that gender role piece, but also kind of understanding how generations are changing and, and navigating and valuing that personal time. I remember there was an article some years ago that came out and kind of um, explaining how men were taking on certainly more family, you know, traditional kind of family caretaking responsibilities. But what what ended up happening was that they were taking way more sick leave than their female spouses. Um, and it was partly because it was like there wasn't enough, there wasn't a lot of muscle memory and understanding how to juggle getting yeah. <laughs> into daycare after the pediatrician, so-and-so's got to get shot, 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 the dog <laughs> is sick and just threw up on the carpet and all of these kinds of things. And so, whereas women seem to have a bit more muscle memory and juggling that and, and just saying, I'll be in the office at 1130 at the time, then we're saying, that's it. I'm staying home to <laughs> take care of all of this stuff. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, and so I think that, that we'll continue to see changes because I think that generationally folks are really valuing time differently and they're taking on different kinds of roles. And again, that generational muscle memory around what they do with their time and how they're able to manage it. 
um, will continue to evolve too. Cool stuff. Yeah. And it's funny when we talk about generations, uh, there's quite a bit of research going on in the food economics world about even, you know, there's generational differences in how we choose food and what type of food we eat and try. And I, I think that it's going to be an interesting time to see this transition happening when more millennials are in the world workforce and taking over a larger portion of society in all aspects. Um, it, it's going to really be interesting to see that. And I, I hope veterinary medicine sees the positive benefits of that yeah. and that the, we continue just to talk about this. I, that that was something that I just found so interesting that, you know, this wasn't a hot, this in the last probably three years this has really come up, right, about these differences in, in gender and across all portions of society, not just pay gaps, but about being treated as equals. And I grew up with two older sisters and a mom, and I'm just like, my mom worked full-time job. My sisters beat me up when they wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, you know, but I see both my sisters have a full-time job. And one of the interesting pieces of research that I read was that, you know, women who grew up with a mom who worked a full-time job are more likely to actually have a full-time job. Mm. And so I thought that was another interesting piece that I'd love to dive more into with veterinary medicine. And those that are, you know, female vets that choose to work part-time or maybe choose not to work later in life because they do have a family and understanding, you know, what is that, what is that muscle memory, right? And so um, just an added piece on to future research, hopefully. Exciting stuff. Well, I look forward to finding opportunities to work with you um, and um, our colleagues at AVMA. So yeah. thank you. thanks for coming on the show. It's been a really great discussion. Really yeah. Well, thank you again for having me. I really enjoy this and hopefully get to continue to work with you, Lisa. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, this has been another episode of AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. And I'd like to thank Dr. Neil for joining us today. You can find the show on all of the normal podcast apps, Apple, Stitcher, Google, Alexa, all of that good stuff. So be sure to click subscribe and share and rate us Five star, please. Five stars. (laughs) So that more of your colleagues can find the show. Also, be be mindful that we do have a Facebook page, uh, AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air on Facebook. Um, And you can find all kinds of snippets from previous shows and programming ideas related to diversity and inclusion in veterinary medicine. For my colleague and myself, uh, we will bid you adieu and we will talk to you next time. Thank you.